And so we're excited uh, to be here. Uh, we're excited to have you all here. And I just want to let you guys know that I love each and every one of you, man, from the bottom of my heart. You guys are a blessing to me. You guys are family. And tonight, I invite you guys to open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and that's where we'll be at. We're kind of just tiptoeing on through this thing, and we're not in no big hurry. Um, so if you guys think I need to speed up, don't say anything, because we're not going to go any faster. So it's okay. Anyway, so tonight, the, the title of this message is going to be Assurance. Am I not on? Pretty loud, though, ain't I? Hello? Am I louder now? No, nope, still not on. It's your fault. I got green. Green. I was on this thing earlier. It's off. Battery's bad. That's the problem. Oh, it would be fun for another. Greg, give me your box. It's okay. Oh, I dropped my clip. Sorry. Anyways, uh, so the title of this message tonight is is uh, assurance. And so we're back in our study of 1 John, and we're actually to our fourth Sunday uh, here at Waymaker Baptist Church. And so it's kind of amazing to think that we've been meeting for four consecutive Sundays in a row. Amen? Amen. It's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's one month. You right? Am I on now? Okay. We're good to go now, ain't we? Sorry for that, guys. Okay, we sound better, don't we? So this study's been pretty intense so far, um, and it's really only the beginning. <clears throat> it keeps getting deeper. It keeps getting more direct. And, and so theologians try to put the book of First John, it really, it's not like Paul where he kind of writes like this and then this and then this and then this. Uh, John kind of writes more in a spiral, it seems like. And so some theologians debate that he starts at this inner, the most inner part of the spiral and he works outwards. And some debate that he starts at the outward and focuses in and goes dialing inward. And I think he keeps going deeper and deeper each time because you see a lot of repetitive things in his uh, epistles, in his writing. So it keeps getting deeper, it keeps getting more direct, and people have compared the writings of the Apostle John to a body of water. And they like to say that a small child could wade in one end of, uh, of his scriptures while the most brilliant theologian could drown on the other end. And it's so true because, like I said, John's so black and white in his letters, he's so direct, he's so blunt, and however, though, he's so thought-provoking at the same time. Uh, we have to stop sometimes and look at the language that he used, and we have to back up and reread what we just read. He makes us think very deep. And while John wrote his gospel account of Jesus Christ, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. He wrote that so that people may come to salvation. John wrote this letter titled 1 John to give the believer assurance of their salvation. So, for example, at the end of his gospel, John writes in chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And at the end of this letter, 1 John, he writes in uh, chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now remember from our previous three weeks in this study that John's battling false teachers, right? Otherwise known as, as Gnostics. And they've risen from among the churches in Asia Minor, and these false teachers uh, begin to teach that they have a special and higher knowledge uh, of God. And what they had to say was far more important than the teachings of the apostles. And so the apostles, just to name a few, were men like Paul and Peter, James, Matthew, and John. They had direct contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, and they conveyed the very message that Jesus taught himself. So there couldn't be really any higher knowledge than that in which the apostles had. I mean, it'd be amazing to sit at the feet of Jesus. Could you imagine being there at the Sermon on the Mount, sitting in the grass as Jesus taught? 
They were there. They were his close posse. They were in the inner circle. And yet these false teachers claimed that they had higher knowledge. They disrupted the body of Christ here in Asia Minor uh, with their heretical teachings of both the deity and the humanity of Christ. They, they interrupted the, the church with their uh, false views of sin. They claimed that you could sin as much as you wanted to and have no effect on your spirit. Uh, they claimed that you could sin as, or th- that if you sinned, you had to t- uh, torment your body, treat your body bad. They had a denial of love for one another. They didn't think you had to meet. They felt that you could hate each other and be okay. And these false teachers left the assembly of the brethren. So in other words, they left the church. And they left the genuine believers uh, who, who were following the apostolic teachings very confused. They were like, well, which one do I go after? Do I listen to these people who claim that they have a higher knowledge? Or do I follow after this old man, John, who's 90 years old? Which is true. So they were very confused. They were disoriented. And this essentially led the elderly John, who, like I said, is about 90 years old, to write the first epistle to his little children to, as I said, give them absolute assurance of their salvation and confession of Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God. And in this letter, John gives us 10 tests. I count 10. Some people count three. Some people count nine. uh, But I found, I've searched the scriptures, and what I see are 10 tests, 10 ways that we can be assured that we have come to know Christ. We've already walked through two of these tests in our series already, and the tests were more external than anything, and they were based on doctrine. They were, and what that means is that they were based on, on what a true Christian should believe and confess. And so the first test that we covered is that we have the correct view of the true Christ. And we visited that in our very first series, our very first sermon in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And the correct view of Christ that John paints in detail is that Christ is both God and that he is man. Uh, That he was in the beginning before anything was and that he was born into this world and he lived a perfect sinless life and became the sacrifice that appeased the wrath of God and gives us our only entryway into eternal salvation in heaven. That's the true picture of Christ. And the second test that uh, uh, the second test was that we had the correct view of sin, right? We looked at that in chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 2. And to sum it up, it was that we were honest with our depraved nature, right? Knowing for a fact that we are sinners, that we must confess our sins to be saved. Nobody ever got into heaven without confessing their sins, right? So when we are born again Christians on the, when we are born again Christians on the right side of salvation, we don't continually practice sin, right? We're, we're not, we don't wake up and make that our job, more or less. We, are, uh, we don't live in darkness, Uh, We don't practice it. We don't wake up to sin. We're not slaves to sin, but we're slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to God. So when we do sin, we're cut to the heart. We're convicted. We're pierced in the heart, and and, and we are quick to confess our sin to our advocate, who I said was our helper, uh, the one who comes alongside Jesus Christ, and and we know that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So that's the correct view of sin that, that, that we have. And so these tests are to show you that you can have assurance of your salvation. Do you know this true Christ? Do you have this correct view of sin? And this third test that we'll be uh, looking at in this letter from, from John is found here in verse 3 of chapter 2. So follow along with me, guys, as I read from the Word of God. <clears throat> now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Lord, we thank you. Uh, we love you. Sometimes I can't believe, Lord, that you would allow me to preach. That you'd use a sinful wretch like me. But, Lord, I'm sure of my salvation today. I'm sure that you have saved me. I'm sure that you have set me on a rock, and his name is Jesus Christ. And, Lord, I pray 
that this flock of ours would have that same assurance today, that they know that they know that they know where they're going to be on Judgment Day, and that they know that they are set apart in this world. So, Father, I pray that you would speak through me and open the hearts, open the ears, open the eyes of this congregation to receive your word. We know we can do nothing without you first doing it for us, Lord. So we pray for uh, you to move in here. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me get a drink of water real quick. I'm parched. So why is it important to know uh, that you know something? Like, why do we need to have assurance? Why is that so important? Why do we need to know that we know that a promise is guaranteed or that something is real? And it's pretty simple because we don't want to put our trust into something that isn't real because sometimes it can get us into pretty big trouble. Uh, for instance, like we had some good friends that came up here last weekend um, and helped us with the uh, opening day, the opening morning, right? Um, so on their way back to, to Springfield, they stop at a convenience store and in good old Omaha fashion, they, they pull out or well, they pull out a $100 bill and they buy some stuff and, and the lady gives them uh, his change back, some 20s, a couple 10s, maybe a, a five or so, you know? And so he makes it all the way back. He just kind of takes it, puts it in his wallet. He doesn't look at it. He makes it all the way back to Missouri, back to Springfield. And he's at a Walmart self-checkout. And he's, he's got some stuff up there, and he's trying to pay for it. And he's putting this $20 bill in there. And, it, and over and over and over and over again, it just keeps spitting it right back out. So finally, he's like, what's the deal here? So he picks it up, and he looks at it. And the back of it is printed crooked as all, all get out, is what he said. It was crooked as a dog's hind leg, you know? And it was, it was all jacked up. And so he said, and it was then that I noticed that, like, man, it wasn't even the same color. It didn't feel right. It had, didn't have the right weight. This $20 bill was fake. Indeed, it was a counterfeit. And, and so had he tried to use that bill anywhere else, there'd be a good chance he could have got some serious trouble, right? Which leads me to this point, that the U.S. government uses marks, seals, ribbons, special ink, special paper, and our currency to give us assurance that the money we're carrying is genuine, Right? Uh, you know, it gives us peace in knowing that we can spend it without going to jail for a federal crime. You know, some of us know about the feds, and it's not fun. Uh, I don't, so don't hear me say that. But these signs are also proof to the banker, uh, to the store owner, and even to the self-checkout machine that the bill that was provided is genuine, and it's in fact valuable U.S. currency. It's not a counterfeit, and you can spend it here, right? They have seals, marks, and things like that. So assurance is important because we want to know, we want to trust in something, we want to have peace and not fear. So if we go to such great lengths to have assurance of the currency that we spend here in America, why are we not searching after the absolute assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ? As Christians, we too have marks and seals that identify us as genuine believers, right? People are able to tell that we are authentic. You shouldn't have to be in a situation long before people know that you're a Christian, there's no reason why you should be at your job and you've been there for two or three weeks and nobody knows you're a Christian yet. Absolutely no reason at all. They should be able to tell that you are a Christ follower. It, it, there's a light that shines forth from you. There is a, well, you're a witness. Sometimes we're walking Bibles. You may be the only Bible that somebody reads. And as Christians, uh, we too want to know that we're not counterfeit as, uh, 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 we're not counterfeit as well. We want to know where we stand on the day of judgment. And ultimately, we want to have hope and assurance that we are a child of God. It's not something that we want to gamble with. We want to be pretty, pretty sure about that, right? And unfortunately, though, some denominations teach that you cannot have assurance of your salvation. Some, salva some uh, uh, denominations teach that you will not know until you die if you're saved. 
Some denominations teach that you cannot have that assurance. It's on the state of your soul when you get there. Some believe that you can lose your salvation. While on the other side, the other extreme, some teach that it's, they, they shout from the rooftops, once saved, always saved, so it's okay for me to live however I want to. Okay, only half of that is true. It's not, you know. Once you are saved, you are always saved, but you cannot go and live like the devil. These are lies from the pit of hell. And church, it's my burden tonight to lay before you and present you with the truth. And I hope that I can do that if the Lord would allow me. That you can have absolute assurance of your salvation. My hope is to show you through the promises of God's word that we have peace in our salvation. And knowing that we know him. That we know he who saves is also he who keeps. And I hope also to prove to you that obedience to God's command commands is an ultimate test of our salvation as we do the works of him through him who lives inside of us. So let's dive into this and, and follow me as we look uh, into 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And we're just going to focus, we're going to put a lot of focus on the first half of this verse. And when I come back from vacation, we're going we're gonna to dig into this very last word of this verse, actually. And we're, we're going to look at some of the commands of Jesus Christ. But we're going we're gonna to jump off the launch pad here a little bit. So looking at at verse 3, the first few words says this. He starts off by saying, now by this. So his grammar here implies a shift of pace, really. And it's now a change of a direction in his argument. So where he was once talking about um, the doctrine of sin and, and the right view of sin, he now switches to where he is now, which is the assurance of our salvation in the life of the believer. And John writes that we can know that we know him. And I want to pause here for a minute and just share some nugget that I learned from a, a man named Steve Lawson on the book of First John. Uh, the most frequently used word in First John is the word know, K-N-O-W, to know. In fact, it's used 40 times. And I wouldn't have to go very far to venture to say that John is really trying to prove a point here with this repetitive word or use of the word know, K-N-O-W. And it's kind of really a stab at the Gnostics because the, the Greek word for know, for, for, the, for, the, for the, the real know, to know in your heart and your head, is gnosis, uh, gnoso. I, I don't know exactly how to say it right, but it's the root word of that word Gnostic. So he's saying, you guys think you know. No, let me tell you how you really know, okay? So it's kind of a really a, a good stab at them. And just a little food for, for thought. In the Bible, we often see words repeated over and over again, right? We might see them repeated two or three times in a row. And so, for instance, uh, let me give you an example. The four living creatures before the throne in Revelations chapter 4, verse 8, they say, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so when the Bible says something once, obviously it's important, right? Because God said it. But when the Bible says something two or three times, like holy, 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 it adds importance. It adds significance to the meaning behind the word each time. It just, it's kind of like a set of stairs. If I were to come down here and step up, it's like stepping up one level, another level, and then a third level. So it's a poetic way, really, that the authors wrote in that time, the Hebrew authors, the Greek authors, uh, that they wrote that's intended to grab the attention of the reader. It would almost be like saying this, holy. Holier, holiest is the Lord God Almighty. He is thrice holy and of utmost significance. There's nothing holier than he. He's really trying to prove a point. And so for the apostle John to use the word no 40 times is to declare the importance of the message that he's proclaiming. He's really trying to grab our attention here. So he's saying that it's important and crucial that we know that we know Jesus. Don't you want to know that you know Jesus? Don't you want to have assurance of your salvation? 
Are you tired of living in fear? Are you tired of being on this roller coaster? Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? Am I not saved? Don't you want confidence in the day of judgment? You don't want to gamble on this, guys. If this assurance is so important to John, then it's so important to God. And it's also important to other writers of the New Testament as well. It should be important to us also. For example, if we look at Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and I'll just read it for you. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he's saying that you need to have assurance of your own salvation through your own personal obedience to God, serving him out of reverence, out of respect, out of fear, out of, out of uh, uh, honor, knowing that it is his inner working of the Holy Spirit that's causing you to live obedient to his command. It's not you doing it, it's him doing it through you. And Peter also addresses absolute assurance in 2 Peter 1.10 when he writes, Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. So how can we make our calling and election sure? How can we work out our own salvation? How can we know that we know him? And we'll find this answer here in verse 3 as we continue to read it. We'll find another assurance test. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. It's the third test of faith. The third way that John shows us that we can have assurance of our salvation is through our obedience to what God commands us to do. And like I said, when I come back, we'll talk more about what those commandments are. What are the commands of God? What are the commands of Christ? But John doesn't beat around the bush here. And I heard a preacher say one time that John paints in black and white. Why would I come and paint in shades of gray? I wouldn't do that. I got to preach it to you black and white as well. If you, uh, so basically, uh, if you want to know that you know him, you know that you know him by keeping his commandments. That's one way. That's one test. There's no gray area here. John's very direct and it's simple. If we know Christ will keep his commandments, we will do his will. So borrowing from the gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew writes this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So it's not those who proclaim Christ in an empty confession who will enter into heaven. It's the ones who live it out as Christians here on this earth. So that word Christians means little Christs. We are little Christs here in this earth. We are his ambassadors. How can we wear the title of Christians if we're not acting like Christ? We will keep God's commandments. And, and, and we'll get to it here in a minute. But, and that's what John's implying ahead of us in verse 6 when he writes that he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And these, in these verses, they're not speaking of uh, like sinless perfectionism. They're not saying that you need to be perfect as Christ was perfect, right? Uh, because we know we can't do that without his righteousness imputed to us. However, they are placing a great deal of importance on the obedience of the believer. And Christ's lifestyle of obedience to the Father's will is our example. And, and, and it's really the essence of what John's telling us here in verse 3. That we're going to live like Christ in this world. If we, if we want to know that we know him, we're going to keep his commandments. We're going to walk like Christ. And the absolute assurance of our salvation by obedience is not just an isolated teaching in the scriptures. And I love how the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ puts it in James chapter 1, 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he, him, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So James really kind of steps up to the plate here, right? And he nails a home run. He rears back and he nails it home. He nails it past the fence. He's very blunt and he's very straightforward along with his fellow apostle John in saying that if you are only a hearer of the word and not a doer, then you are deceived. If you're not doing what the word says, you're a liar. You're a phony. You're a fake. You're a fraud. You're not a Christian. In fact, he says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so without obedience to God's command, your faith is dead. And it's not saying that we can earn our way to salvation or earn our way to heaven through the works that we do. That's not what he's saying. And and so, uh, in in fact, it's really the opposite. Because what he's saying is this, is that if we're saved, we will do the good works of the Father who is in heaven. If we truly are saved and the Spirit lives inside of us, we're going to produce fruit of the Spirit, right? You shall know a tree by its fruit. It's because we are saved that we'll live a life of obedience. But how will we do that? We can't do it on our own, right? So there is hope, guys. It's only by Christ living in us through the Holy Spirit that we're able to do that, guys. And it's just as Paul writes here, or writes in the verse that I shared earlier with you in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, uh, when he said to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, he follows that up with verse 13. And he really gives us the key to this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Again, Paul also says in Philippians 1, chapter 6, he says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And in the parable of the true vine of the Gospel of John, uh, he also records Jesus saying that apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's the beauty of this, guys. We're not in this alone. So when we're born again, when we receive the Holy Spirit in His fullness, we receive it once and for all. We have a helper. We have a, we have a, a, a counselor. We have the spirit of the living God living inside of us and it compels us to be obedient to what the Father commands us to do. Which is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 that the spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what to pray. He intercedes for us. Like I said, we can't do this alone. We cannot live obedient to the holy commands of God apart from his Holy Spirit. Which is why the mark of obedience to God's commands is one of the assurances of salvation in the life of a true believer. If we're living obedient to God and confessing the true Christ, then there's a good chance you've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Amen? And if the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, what do you got? Regeneration. New birth. You are born again. You are set free. You are heaven bound for eternal glory with God the Father. You're a genuine Christian. And I want to press in just a little bit further here in in closing. Um, So I want to ask you guys this question. What's it mean to truly know God? What's it mean? To know God is to love God. And to love God is to love others because he first loved us. To truly know God is to live in reverence of him. It's to live in respectful fear of him. And to live a life obedient to the one who raised us from death to life. That's what it means to know God. As we come to abound more and more in the knowledge of God, our desire to want to please him, to honor him, to glorify him will only grow stronger. The more that I've spent time in this book, 
you know, I was in, I was in prison and I was in Fulton State Prison in Missouri uh, after when I got saved. And for six months, I sat in this book and I read and I read and I read. And it wasn't until about month four or so that I finally come along, uh, come to a guy who had some discipleship material. He's an old man named Bob Shanks, been coming into prison for 50 years. And uh, he, he started giving me studies and stuff on, on different books of the Bible. But for the most part, it was just me and the Lord. Just me and him. And the more that I knew about him, the more I wanted to tell others about him. The more I knew about him, the more I wanted to live a holy life. The more I knew about him, the more I was set apart from the world. As I continue to know God, I continue, I continue to, to love God even more. And it's, it, that's the amazing thing is we can never grasp, grasp it in its fullness. We can never grasp God for who he is in his fullness. So we'll always be learning. We'll always be knowing. We'll always be growing. We'll always be discipling. We'll always be maturing. We'll be sanctified each and every single day. We're growing more and more. So if you're a born-again believer, if you've come to saving faith through the repentance of your sins and the acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, I want you to walk out of here tonight with assurance in your heart, knowing that you know him through the saving knowledge of the true Jesus Christ. I want you to have peace in your life, knowing that your convictions of sins and your constant confession to our advocate is proof of your salvation. And again, I want you to walk out of here, head held high, with absolute assurance, knowing that he who began a good work in you will complete it. That your obedience to all that he has commanded you to do is proof of the Holy Spirit of God living and working inside of you. And for you, uh, Christian, maybe you're tired. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're wondering, why am I getting kicked in the teeth? You know, why are all of these things happening to me? I'm so tired. I'm so worn out. I know the true Christ. I confess my sins. There's no sin in my camp that I'm habitually living in. I obey God. I do what he commands. Why is my mom dying? Why is my life chaotic? Why do the storms keep coming? Why, Lord? You sit there and you ask yourself over and over again, why, Lord? Why? I do what you desire. Why do I feel like I'm going to break? I don't know how much more I can take, Lord. Help me. My answer is this. Keep holding on. Have assurance that God, as Romans 8.28 says, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And hear the tenderness of his voice when he says in Psalm 46.10, cease striving and know that I am the Lord. Put one of these promises in your pocket. Grab a promise from the Lord every day. Write it down and stick it in your pocket. When you think you've had all you can take, you pull that sucker out and you read it. And I promise you it'll give you the endurance for you to continue to persevere. Have assurance in the promises of God. And have assurance that our God will preserve and persevere you until the end. Because it started with him. It's going to finish with him. It's his work. He will complete it. And for those of you who are for those of you who are headed to an eternal hell because you've never come to the saving faith of Jesus Christ, I want to tell you that there is hope. It's not over. And I want to share the gospel that Jesus Christ came to this world born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect, sinless life. There wasn't one blemish on him. He was pure. 
And in obedience, Christ laid down His life. He was nailed to the cross. He took on the full wrath of God. He took on your sins that you could be saved. He didn't stay dead, though. After three days, He rose again. God rose Him from the dead. And Jesus appeared to many. He taught. He encouraged. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. He's seated at His right hand. But let me tell you something, friend. He's coming back again. He's coming back. So why gamble with the truth anymore? Nail it down tonight. Make today the day of salvation. Crawl to the cross. Place your trust in the Christ and the sacrifice in Christ and the sacrifice that He made for you to be saved. Place your trust in that. Crawl to the cross. Uh, crawl to the gospel that I just told you. Because the scripture says that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody can come to the Father except through me. That's Jesus is talking. That's his words. It says that nobody can come to me unless the Father draws them. Is God drawing you tonight? And the scriptures also say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You're one step away. Jesus is the only way. Okay, there's no other way to heaven. There's many religions in this world, but there's no other way to heaven. You know, all those other prophets, all those other um, religious leaders, you know what happened to them? They died. They're still there in their graves. They're dead, okay? You know what happened to ours? He rose. He's alive. He ain't in that grave. The stone rolled away. He's not there anymore. And there's only one way to salvation. There's only one way to heaven, and it is through Jesus. Have assurance. Call on him tonight and have assurance, knowing that heaven will be sweet. Don't chance it, guys, because the fires of hell are hot and they never stop burning. The scriptures say that the fires are never quenched and the worm never stops eating. Yet eternal life, eternal life in heaven is pure. It's sweet. It's endless praise. It's joy. You've heard me say it a million times. There will be no more need for a sun or for a lamp. The, the glory of God will illuminate heaven. You'll fall flat on your face. If you guys love singing here in church, that's all you're going to be doing anyways. You're going to be praising the Lord with all that you've got. I can only imagine what it'll be like. There's going to be peace and happiness with God and His saints. There's going to be no more tears, no more hurt, no more heartaches, no more addictions, no more sin. And as the song goes, the only scars in heaven will be in the hands that hold me now. And so I want to close with this hymn, guys. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit and washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song, praising my savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my savior all the day long. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. And this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Is this your story tonight? What song are you singing? Do you have blessed assurance that Jesus is yours? Get a taste of the glory divine. A closing prayer. Lord, we're honored to be here as a congregation in this building. Uh, you have taken an old nasty vessel, this old broken down building that was going to be used for that of the world. 
and yet you transformed it into something for your glory, Lord. And we pray, first and foremost, for, uh, foremost, Lord, that you would always get all the glory, that it wouldn't be a message that I preached or Brother Rick preached or uh, a song that Naomi or Journey sang that would get people riled up, but it would it would be the the entirety of the word of God that was proclaimed in our songs and in our preaching that would that would fire people up and that you would get all the glory for it, Lord. We pray that when we stand before you, you would say, well. By the hope that is in us, uh, uh, your, your spirit testifies with our spirit, Lord. You're working in our hearts. You're causing us to be obedient to your commands. And we just keep on trying to do the next right thing and the next right thing.